This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. My name is Dr. Oshin Wall and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, University College Dublin. For details about the Centre, please visit our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the Centre's iTunes page or our media website, chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 8th of February 2018, Dr Jane Hand of the University of Warwick reads her paper entitled Health on the High Street, Consumerism, the NHS and Low-Fat Diets in Britain since the 1970s. The chair for this paper was Dr Catherine Cox, Assistant Professor at the School of History at University College Dublin. Today we welcome Dr Jane Hand to the seminar series um, and it's actually lovely to do so because of course Jane um, did her BA here yes. in UCD and you know when you're getting old, when your undergraduate students are now coming back as postdoctoral <laughs> fellows, um, but it's, it's really a, a wonderful pleasure. Jane was one of the first, first classes I think in pure history that I taught. Ooh, I don't know, um, I didn't know so, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I taught here in UCD. So. Very nice to, to have her back. Um, you also did the MA course in, in medical history here and then proceeded to do her PhD at Warwick University, um, which she finished in 2015. Um, the PhD looked at the role and function of visual images in constructing knowledge about healthy eating and disease prevention in post-war Britain. So Jane has moved from Irish history into uh, British history and very contemporary British history as well. You're currently a research fellow on the Wellcome Trust uh, project at Warwick University that looks at the NHS. It's a very big, very exciting project um, with Roberta Bivens and Matthew Thompson as the PIs. And also you are, I think you're still on the succumbent? To uh, the, no. No, that have, finished. Yeah, that's finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the a succumbent fe- fellow at the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology at Westminster. So an interesting shift there towards policy, um, which is careers that uh, we could all go into for this <laughs> So today you are going to look at health on the high street, consumerism, the NHS, and low-fat diets in Britain since the 1970s. So... Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Catherine, for your introduction and for inviting me to speak here. Uh, It's lovely to be back in UCD. I feel slightly nostalgic wandering around the corridors, but I love the new bathrooms. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I'm going to talk today, as Catherine said, about research that I'm conducting as part of the cultural history of the NHS project at Warwick. Um, My focus is on public health, and my current work is looking at the role of the food industry and retailers in selling particular forms of healthy behaviours to the public. Um, It emphasises the increasing interconnectedness of public health, NHS nutritional guidance and the rise of health consumerism since the 1970s. It's still very much a work in progress, so any questions, comments, help that you can give me is greatly appreciated. Uh, So since the post-war period, food choice and diet have become increasingly intertwined with wider health and food policies focused on disease prevention, public health and medical service provision. As epidemiological research into chronic disease causation identified the high intake of particular nutrients or minerals like fat or sodium as harmful to health from about the 1960s, retailers recognised the potential 
and of products that reduced or removed these components in order to encourage consumers to make healthy choices. The National Health Service was an important educator in this respect, urging at-risk patients to engage in new health behaviours, make better lifestyle choices, change their diet and exercise more is by and large their kind of uh, go-to mantra. So it promoted the idea that individualised health risks could be overcome, at least in part, by complying with a myriad of health advice that included specific recommendations about food consumption. The focus on individual behaviours as key markers of disease risk enabled the NHS to tout particular diets as not just important for those patients identified as at risk, but also for the nation as a whole, a preventive national diet for health. The resulting emergence of public anxiety around the role of unhealthy foods in disease prevention, sorry, disease causation, empowered food producers, manufacturers and retailers in turn to co-opt the health education message to create new health foods, centred on championing various foods as potentially disease preventing. And this first converged around the emerging scientific understanding that fat, and especially saturated fat, was having a detrimental effect on blood cholesterol itself an important indicator of increased risk of disease. From the late 1960s, um, fat was increasingly pinpointed yeah, as um, the main contributor to heart disease, which was rapidly becoming the greatest cause of premature mortality amongst men in the United Kingdom. I'm just going to quickly switch to uh, this, uh, in part because the British popular scientific press was regularly reporting on the dangers of fat in the diet, and this is just selection, uh, throughout the 1960s and 1970s. And this created a kind of a consensus around the idea that fat was the, the, the sole culprit, I suppose, in increased risk of coronary heart disease. Oh, no, I was going back, wasn't I? Yeah, there we go. So yeah, this paper um, will examine the emergence of low-fat health advice in relation to coronary heart disease from the 1970s to the early 2000s. To do so, I'll first talk about the development of um, nutritional health policy for coronary heart disease from the 1960s. Um, before emphasising the role of the NHS in transmitting health knowledge about diet to an at-risk patient population. I want to show how these state-sponsored claims became transposed and reworked in the context of rampant consumerism and the popular understanding that preventive health can be bought on the high street. And so I'm going to use the supermarket development of low-fat milk as a case study to examine how product creation along with branding and packaging facilitated the move of healthy choice, the movement even, of healthy choices away from locales such as the hospital, the GP service or the pharmacy and into the supermarket, the health food shop or the grocers. So this paper is ultimately I suppose trying to examine the ways in which public health campaigning and food retailing have become interconnected and interacted with each other in communicating disease risk to consumers in the second half of the 20th century. Okay, so I'll get started on health education and the nutritional health policy. So the focus on fat consumption as a central contributor to coronary heart disease and its central position in health education was the culmination of a major shift in public health that took place in the decades after the Second World War. The rise of risk factor epidemiology uh, within Western medical science, and epidemiology is the idea that you can examine the causes and the risks statistically of you, the, the likelihood of you developing a certain condition. Um, and this was incorporated very kind of systematically into health policy making from the 1960s and it instituted new styles of public health practice that focused on risk rather than direct causation. As I said this therefore I suppose promoted or elevated the role of lifestyle and behaviour 
enabling a wide range of preventive programmes to identify individuals as the important agents of change. Consequently, public health became increasingly interested in persuading the public to engage in better health practices, such as quitting smoking, eating different foods, increasing their physical activity, reducing their alcohol consumption, um, etc. Um, this was termed the new public health, um, and I suppose to make it distinct from the older styles of public health, which was to do with epidemic um, infection. And it necessitated more effective and innovative methods for communicating with the public. Virginia Berridge has emphasised the role consumerism played in health education programmes, with both the state and the self important brokers in constructing individuals as self-regulated actors, encouraged to modify their behaviour in ways that were state-sanctioned and supported. Population-level approaches to public health issues increasingly use the tenets of marketing and advertising to engage with the at-risk individual. In 1964, the Cohen Report on Health Education, um, published by the Central and Scottish Health Services Councils, argued the need for health education to make more effective use of mass <coughs> media so that campaigns could productively influence individuals to act on the advice given and demonstrate so-called self-discipline in controlling their behaviours. Historians such as Berridge, Kelly Lachlan and Alex Mould have demonstrated the role of the media not only in health education campaigning, but also in health broadcasting more generally. The centrality of mass media techniques to the construction of the new public health ensured that communication techniques that focused on visual imagery, uh, film, TV, um, as well as packaging, branding and in-store retailing um, were valued tools of persuasion. So from the 1960s, body weights in Britain were steadily rising. And so too were the associated diseases of heart disease, hypertension, and diabetes. In this respect, Britain was not unique, but rather part of a wider international proliferation of chronic disease that emerged in the post-war period. Uh, various scientific studies, um, especially the Framingham Heart Study in the United States and the Seven Countries Study, which was led by Ansel Keys, um, who uh, really promulgated the um, Mediterranean diet, which you may have heard of, um, suggested a strong correlation between those diets high in saturated fat and the increased incidence of heart disease. This had particular implications for the understanding of heart disease and the development of disease prevention programs in many countries. For Britain, it was integrated into epidemiologically based health policymaking. The concurrent rise of technocracy and the establishment of expert committees, which united scientists and medical professionals and government in policymaking, uh, allowed essentially epidemi epidemiological findings uh, to gain um, increased traction in health policy, framing public health priorities and making their way into health education strategies. Uh, for diet and heart disease, uh, the Committee on the Medical and Nutritional Aspects of Food Policy, um, which I'll now call COMA, was a key organisation in creating new health policies to address the emergent scientific understanding of the role diet was playing in coronary heart disease causation. It was established in 1957 and chaired by the Chief Medical Officer. Uh, the committee advised the government on the medical and scientific aspects of policy in relation to nutrition. In 1965, the committee was reconstituted and the word nutritional was dropped from its title. The change um, represented the wider range of issues coming under the committee's remit, which included bacterial, the toxic, the carcinogenic, as well as the idea of the, the, chroni the chronic risk that could be posed by food. Um, in January 1969, the committee discussed a Scandinavian research paper on the topic of unsaturated fats and agreed that COMA could not endorse it without examining the problem in greater depth. 
Resultantly, the COMA panel on diet and heart disease was established in 1970 to advise on, and I quote, the significance of any relation between nutrition and cerebrovascular and cardiovascular disease and on any indications for future action, end quote. Its report, Diet and Coronary Heart Disease, published in 1974, represented merely the lowest common factor of agreement by the panel. The report recommended that people should lower their consumption of fat, and especially saturated fat, but such was the level of professional disagreement amongst panel members that John Yudkin, who is Professor of Nutrition and Dietetics at Queen Elizabeth University, included a caveat stating that the report, and again I quote, exaggerated the possible role of dietary fat in causing ischemic heart disease and has minimized the role of sucrose, end quote. So there's a parallel story here about sucrose that I don't really have time to touch on today, but for all intents and purposes for the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s narrative, it's fat that becomes the scapegoat. So this debate around fat versus sucrose within the panel severely limited the policy implications of the report. The main impact related to advertising standards, giving COMA the power to reject any advertisement that made health claims unsupported by the conclusions of the report. But it fell far short of influencing the introduction of nutritional guidelines. Yet the environment in which this committee was operating was dynamic and rapidly changing. The emergence of new lifestyle and risk-focused community health coalesced with an increased interest by medical professionals in efforts to reduce rates of heart disease by emphasizing prevention. In 1976, the Royal College of Physicians published a report um, on diet and cardiovascular disease and also recommended that saturated fat intake be lowered. This coincided with the governmental commissioning of various policy documents to better understand the health implications of diet. The Department of Health and Social Security published the governmental policy document Prevention and Health, Everybody's Business, in 1976, followed by Prevention and Health, Eating for Health in 1978. These emerged during a period of substantial financial difficulty for the state in funding the institutions of the welfare state. Within this context, preventive medicine was viewed as a potentially cost-saving measure that might reduce pressures on financially stretched NHS services. Dietary advice recommendations were therefore conceptualized within not only a changing public health context, but also a period of government retrenchment in health spending. The National Advisory Committee on Nutrition Education, now known as NACNI, similarly sought to determine pragmatic policy recommendations on diet and disease. Um, it was set up in 1979 and it reported in 1984, making much more extensive recommendations for dietary change. A second COMA panel updated their findings in 1984, which led to the development of the Look After Your Heart campaign launched in 1987, and this was the first um, health education campaign in Britain that, um, I suppose, very forthrightly attacked um, fat in relation to heart disease. So it was the idea that rather than a better health campaign, which its predecessor, Look After Yourself, had been, Look After Your Heart was purposely going down the route that heart disease was the major killer and therefore the major uh, disease type that was in need of preventive action um, on the part of the public. And it was a multimedia um, education campaign, um, and it emphasized the risks to health posed by unhealthy diets, lack of exercise, smoking, and high alcohol consumption. And in this context, public health campaigning emerged as only one platform for promoting lifestyle as a central risk factor for disease causation. The move towards detailed advice campaigns reflected an effort to enlist consumers themselves into adopting appropriate health behaviors. 
and this involved constructing the responsible consumer as health conscious and involved in the self-regulation of diet and physical activity. By persuading consumers to engage in practices aimed to prolong life, uh, public health was contributing to a new way of seeing the self as being an actor that the state could call upon to prevent disease for the national good. So it wanted people to interiorise health advice, show self-restraint, but at the same time, and really importantly, it wanted people to consume more but different products to secure the continued success of the consumer society. So this health consumerism demonstrated a respect for the development of new diet markets, such as those based on reducing fat content, and consequently the marketization of nutrition and diet itself. So to a large extent, the marketization of nutrition was nothing new in post-war Britain. The rise of low fat in the 1970s can be situated within a wider narrative of food consumerism that stemmed from the popularization of vitamins in the early decades of the 20th century and included the increasing demand for food choice and convenience in the post-Second World War years. Within a US context, historians have placed particular emphasis on the food product label, which has often acted as a medium by which to popularize scientific and technical knowledge and to provoke new ways of thinking about food. Zach Froelich um, argued that the turn to food labeling as an aspect of food policy integrated with a broader political shift towards neoliberalism in 1970s American society. He argued that nutrition labeling should be understood as an important aspect of a mobilization of markets, which sought to make food choice and consequently aspects of public health an issue of individual uh, responsibility and choice. This growth of a science-based consumerism and neoliberal market thinking was not solely an American phenomenon, however. On the contrary, with the stabilization and later major expansion of food supplies in the post-war period in Britain, there were increased market opportunities for the development of new healthy eating products and diet supplements. The importance of own brand uh, food products as an agent for the dissemination of health education information should not be over, sorry, underestimated during a period when there was a shift from a focus on consumers only eating foods to consumers also reading foods. Therefore, the influence of advertising methods of packaging and branding alongside consumer-oriented approaches were visible within the post-war public health paradigm, where models of selling health were central to public and privately-led programs of popular education. Food choice became a central um, element in the individualised public health of the post-war period. The virtues of particular foods were promulgated not just by the NHS and the Department of Health and through primary and secondary care, but also through the machinations of corporate food advertising. Within a food industry that viewed preventive health advice as a hitherto untapped financial resource, tying in as it did with a pre-existing diet culture focused on weight loss. But just before um, I talk more about the food industry, I want to touch on briefly-ish on the role of the NHS was beginning to play in this area, not just in communicating dietary information, but also attempting to institute some form of formal change um, in how it fed its patient population and staff in particular. So because individual agency and responsibility for health lay in the consumer's ability to choose better foods, the NHS increasingly recognised that it had an important role to play in communicating which foods were healthier, as well as facilitating new shopping and eating habits. The development of local food and health policies began in 1981, um, and the first policy was introduced in South Manchester. 
The largest growth followed the publications of that NACNI report in 83 and the second coma report in 1984, which encouraged local health authorities to slowly begin developing their own policies that aimed to promote better health choices. By August 1985, 61 of the 192 local health authorities in the UK had a formal policy about food and health, and a further 72 were developing one. The majority of these policies focused on the role local NHS services could play in promoting changes in eating habits. And broadly speaking, they fit into um, three um, main approaches. So the first is food substitution, uh, such as swapping out uh, white flour for wholemeal flour, um, as well as alteration in cooking methods, so grilling instead of frying. Uh, the provision of a healthy food choice within existing NHS menus and um, by highlighting options that would be available that kind of correspond to dietary recommendations. And the third was the complete swapping out of unhealthy meal options for healthy alternatives. And this approach was usually confined to staff canteens rather than public or patient meals uh, because of a general belief within many local authorities that hospital stays were not the optimal location to introduce restrictive diets to patients. The most popular area for action was therefore catering services within the NHS, reflecting the difficulties uh, many local health authorities experienced in carrying out a strategy for food and health that worked within the community, where access, time and resources were continual obstacles. And this focus on the local within the National Health Service, I think, reflects really well the varied and diverse local iterations of the health service, where centralised strategies and guidelines were tailored within the health, econ health economy of individual regions. And these types of food and health policies therefore reflected widespread local aversion to things like regulation, zoning and active intervention in schools, for example. But health policy researchers... Oh, sorry, also recognised the important role primary care could play in encouraging behaviour change by providing tailored advice to patients in order to help them alter their diets. GPs, community dietitians, and pharmacists were identified as key agents in communicating health education priorities to the public with dedicated leaflets produced by local health authorities to be distributed in surgery rating rooms and pharmacy counters. In addition, prescription lists included substantial food and diet options that could be prescribed to patients at a risk of coronary heart disease, including the low-fat butter substitute Flora, as well as referral to weight loss groups such as Weight Watchers and Slimming World. So the early 1990s also witnessed the launch of the Health of the Nation White Paper, and this marked the first attempt by the UK government to develop a national strategy explicitly to improve the health of the population of England as a whole. And that's partly to do with the different iterations of the National Health Service and health um, promotion guidelines in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, um, and just the, kind of the whole setup of devolution. Um, so the focus of the Health of the Nation White Paper is only on England. And it's set improvement targets in five areas, um, which are coronary heart disease and stroke, cancer, mental illness, HIV, v, AIDS and sexual health, which reflects the fact that it was 1992, um, and accidents. Um, and in fact, of any government white paper, I think it's only this one that HIV, AIDS and sexual health are considered um, important enough to make it onto a, a, a large scale um, population wide strategy. So it built on the proposals of the World Health Organization's publication Health for All by the year 2000, which was published in 1978 as part of the wider New Public Health movement. The White Paper attempted to widen the responsibility for health and was overseen by a ministerial committee comprised of ministers and junior ministers from 12 government departments, including health, social security, employment and the environment. At local level, health authorities were given the responsibility for the coordination and implementation of the strategy through alliances with other organisations, 
such as the local councils, voluntary agencies, and interestingly for me, the private sector, which included the food industry. The strategy was the central plank of health policy in England for much of the 1990s, and it formed the context for planning services provided by the NHS. This is probably my most complicated sentence, so <laughs> I'll just go for it. So the development of a purchaser-provider split, which is whereby part of the NHS is responsible for contracting NHS and independent sector providers to supply services to patients within the NHS, alongside the creation of an internal market, which allowed hospitals to establish trusts in order to gain independence from local health authorities. Okay, so do, those two things together in, okay, in the local health systems of the NHS hindered the success of the Health of the Nation strategy. And that's because health improvement programs did not compare well with other forms of health intervention in terms of short-term outcomes versus cost. And because of the tendency of middle managers, which were introduced when you decide to marketize a health service, that's a welfare state provision, massively prioritize clinical obligations over collaborative health education strategies. Does that make sense? Sort of. Okay, I'll move on. An assessment of the programme by health researchers at the University of Leeds, the University of Glamorgan, and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine did, however, conclude that GP services in particular widely adopted the health promotion aspects of their contracts in relation to the Health of the Nation paper, and that health and exercise advice came to play a much greater part of GP advice giving by the end of the 1990s. The launch of NHS Direct in March 1998, uh, which was a nurse-led telephone referral and information service, and from 1999 it was supported by an extensive website that provided clinically accurate health advice and information, became one major way the NHS provided dietary and health information to the public at the dawn of the new century. Its current iteration as NHS Choices provides in-depth and wide-ranging information and practical advice on how to alter diets for disease prevention, how to access weight loss groups, where to access smoking cessation groups, alcohol and drug dependency programs, and how to make healthier recipes for long-term change. And this broad approach to achieving better health outcomes as a central element of public health ensured that the private sector, including the food industry, would continue to play an important role in how health promotion priorities were communicated to the public through the NHS and enacted by the public within the home. In particular, the supermarket came to occupy an important position in how the public incorporated health advice into shopping behaviours, especially as preventive behaviour and purchasing decisions increasingly went hand in hand. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the background on the history of the supermarket in Britain and how it came to utilise the messages of health education in its product creation to start to build up a picture of how health policy, public health and food retailing, which I've so far discussed separately, were interconnected during this period. As I mentioned earlier, medical science was slowly identifying the potential role of saturated fats in the likelihood of developing primary heart disease across the 1960s and 1970s. Now, at the same time, the British food retailing environment was undergoing significant change. As a recipient of Marshall Aid, Plan Aid in the 1950s, Britain had been required to introduce American-style business models into their post-war reconstruction programme. Recent historical research has recognised the influence of this Americanization in transforming aspects of the British consumer society, and in particular, the introduction of self-service retailing in grocery shops and the associated rise of the supermarket, 
So self-service in the 1960s didn't mean like it does now, where you don't want to deal with a human at all, and you go to a self-service checkout, but it meant that you actually went around and picked out groceries and put them into a trolley yourself, rather than went to a counter, and a nice grocer would do it for you. So this was considered incredibly modern um, in the 1950s, and very much a sign of a, kind of a society moving forward within a reconstructive program. A new high street, you know, your build, your, the, the building program of the 1950s was so extensive that they, there was an opportunity to really integrate self-service into kind of the new high street. So Sainsbury's uh, was an early adopter, and these are both um, Sainsbury's um, shops, so from outside and inside. And they adopted self-service, um, opening the first branch in Croydon in 1950. And throughout the 1960s and 1970s, it continued to expand its self-service stores, consolidating their grocery premises by applying large centralised supermarkets and kind of hypermarkets uh, that we'd be familiar with today. By 1987, self-service in supermarkets accounted for almost three quarters of the grocery market, and Sainsbury's was the market leader. This change in the structure of British food retailing had important implications for how both the food industry and government might, might best influence consumer eating habits. The two largest retailers, Sainsbury's and Tesco, began developing nutrition programmes in the late 1970s, and both were early adopters of including nutritional labelling on their own brand range of products. And this was long before branded manufacturers like Unilever, Kraft and Nestle began to do so, um, and by and large they needed a regulatory push in that direction. Uh, Sainsbury's was the first to begin developing its nutrition policy um, in 1979, uh, but Tesco was the first to launch product labels across all its own brand products, announcing in January 1985 that, and I quote, products with a health benefit will be highlighted by a use of a distinctive logo, which is that one, and we hope that our healthy eating program will stimulate the public awareness of the need to eat sensibly. The aim is not to dictate to people what they eat, but to help them understand what they are eating, which sounds delightful. So later that year, Sainsbury's introduced the Sainsbury system of nutrition information that comprised colour coding to indicate the health benefits of individual products according to food composition. So foods that are high and rich in a particular component, say fibre, were coloured brown. Those low or reduced in, say, salt or fat were coded blue. And those with zero, say, sugar or fat, were coloured green. And then they published a a handy little leaflet so that everyone can understand what's set on the side of the packets. So in addition to the use of colours and logos, both Sainsbury's and Tesco comprehensively labelled their own brand packaged products with more detailed information in the form of nutrition data tables. Oh, I'll leave you that for a minute. Uh, research by the British Market Research Bureau in 1984 showed that although 82% of respondents agreed with the importance of knowing exactly what food contains, 61% said that reading ingredients lists takes too long. Only 12% said that they looked at ingredients. However, the National Health Survey of 1986, just two years later, showed that the number of shoppers always reading labels had reached 20%, reflecting a growing interest in understanding the components of packaged foods. Yet the survey also revealed that information on sell-by dates, additives and ingredients, rather than specific health information or nutritional composition, were the main reasons most shoppers consulted food labels. Those specifically looking for nutrition information regarded vitamin content to be the most important, followed by fat, protein and energy value. 
This continued focus on vitamin content reflects the longer history of vitamin promotion um, from the 1920s, which established vitamins as scientifically important to diet and kick-started a series of incredibly successful supplementation campaigns, um, which embedded vitamins within the existent health food culture. And that remained mar remarkably kind of um, static or strong, I can't think of the word, throughout the, uh, from the 1930s to almost to date. Um, in 1975, 20% of packaged goods in supermarkets were own label brands. And by 1987, this had grown to 33%. At first, own label products were developed for basic packaged groceries, and the large supermarkets positioned themselves in the marketplace on the basis of price. But with price competitiveness becoming an increasingly important element in supermarket profitability from the mid-1970s, product quality and convenience were identified as key to satisfying consumer requirements. As part of this, there was a greater demand by consumers for healthier options, and the supermarkets were well positioned to develop nutritionally modified products that could be sold in branch and promoted by in-store retail marketing, um, such as money off coupons, uh, three for two offers, tasting sessions, etc. So recognizing the shifting place of diet within national health guidance, both Sainsbury's and Tesco were involved in the large-scale reformulation of their own label range. During the financial year, um, 1986 to 1987, Tesco reformulated 350 own label products, and the company stating its commitment was to producing all own brand products which follow the principles recommended by Coma. All major supermarkets were now selling own label reduced sugar and salt baked beans, reduced salt canned vegetables and vegetable stock, as well as canned fruit in fruit juice rather than in syrup. Many also developed nutritional variants in the dairy sector, Sainsbury's was particularly active in this area, with the development of some entirely new products, such as Vitapint. It's low-fat milk, non-dairy cream, and low-fat yogurt and half-fat cottage cheese. And there's a photo of some of them. Um, some more tasty than others. So... <laughs> I got to try some at Northside about that. Anyway, in this respect, supermarkets were often ahead of branded goods manufacturers in adopting health education models, uh, such as leaflet creation, uh, that sought to use textual and visual information to inform healthy food choices. In January 1988, Jacqueline McClooney of the Food Policy Research Unit at the University of Bradford reported that among a sample survey of 576 shoppers, 29% said they had received information on healthy eating from a supermarket. Certainly, this type of information appears to have had considerable reach. In 1987, Tesco claimed that over 21 million of their free leaflets on healthy eating had been picked up by customers in store, and that this uptake was mainly by younger and higher socioeconomic groups. Both Sainsbury's and Tesco's sales data showed that consumers were putting the information they read about healthy eating issues into practice. Both recorded a marked increase in the sale of virtually all products associated with a healthier diet between 1980 and 1985. So clearly in the absence of a central government programme by 1985, British food retailers were playing an increasingly influential role in communicating information about diet and health to the public. And I'm just going to speak now about one product that was launched as a low-fat alternative to a full-fat product, that being milk and Sainsbury's Vitapint, which I really like the name. I don't know why. So Vitapint was the first low-fat milk to be marketed in the UK, and it enabled Sainsbury's to maintain overall milk sales at a time when national consumption of liquid milk had declined over 20% in a decade. Launched in 1981 and made from fresh pasteurised skimmed milk and whole milk with added skimmed milk powder, 
and vitamins A and D, which, you know, good old milk, it was marketed as having less than half the fat of normal milk, but with all the goodness. It came in both skimmed and semi-skimmed options, I kid you not, people, and represented the first Sainsbury's product to contain nutritional information in a format that would become incorporated into the food labelling programme later in the decade. From the outset, Vitapint was coded as a health-promoting product that balanced nutritional requirements with reduced fat health benefits. Um, Leaflet produced to coincide with its launch, Sainsbury's Vitapint, the new fresh milk, uh, was quick to set out its distinctiveness, that this milk, despite undergoing the skimming process, had its nutritive value fortified and its flavour improved by adding back in any lost vitamin content and non-fat milk solids to restore texture and taste. It also makes clear that, of course, in Vitapint, a much higher proportion of the calories are carbohydrate-based, not fat-based. So milk lovers on a fat-free diet and Weight Watchers can also enjoy Vitapint with clear consciences, which is very nice of them. Sorry. <laughs> so in part a public relations project for this um, own label brand, the Sainsbury's Information Service researched, produced and distributed a variety of advice leaflets um, for shoppers that implicitly and explicitly associated um, Vitapint as a product with particular health benefits, um, and particularly in the context of losing weight, and that losing weight in itself would help reduce your risk of coronary heart disease, um, or chronic, chronic diseases more generally, actually. So in March 1983, Making More of Milk, the third one, um, it basically singled out Vitapint as a fresh milk product exclusive to Sainsbury's. It said there were two varieties, a semi-skilled variety with 300 calories per pint and a low-fat variety with only 230 calories per, per pint. And uh, they produced 16 million leaflets, which seems like a hell of a lot of leaflets for making more of milk. Um, I can't find yet any information from them, I don't think they want to give it to me, on um, whether that was distributed in particular stores in particular areas, um, because I think it would be quite interesting if there's a regional disparity between where these things are being um, kind of distributed, um, but that's still all to play for. So the establishment of this health promotion arm, so this is kind of part of their a Sainsbury's Guide, of Sainsbury's Guide to almost everything under the sun to paint it in a delightful light, and it's part of this new kind of health promotion idea that's running through um, the company at this point. And it fitted in with the supermarket's wider advertising function, reflecting the evolution of infrastructure within companies associated with corporate social responsibility. So while social responsibility was beginning to feature on the agenda of large corporations during the interwar period, it was really from the late 60s, early 70s, that it was routinely incorporated into brand strategies. And such initiatives were important in the creation of a consumer culture around health, disease, and consumer action. So supermarkets like Sainsbury's wanted to be seen to be the good guys, that they were doing something positive by giving you this information, and then they'd follow it up with evaluation of how successful their fabulous leaflets were. So another essential element of Vitapine's market distinctiveness that I'm going to talk about today was its packaging. And this is partly because um, my background is partly in the history of visual culture, but also because I think the packet itself and the way it's laid out can tell us something about what they think the priorities um, are at this time period. So while outwardly corresponding to the general visual aesthetic of a milk carton, its package is subtle but clear visual cues, I think, of what's going on here. So it's fairly standard with a white background. It's got three colours, blue, a light blue as well, a red, and at the bottom, a brown. Um, and it's pretty typical to the other um, cartoned milks being shown by Sainsbury's at this time, its whole milk product um, specifically. Yet the use of the tape measure um, across the front 
um, is, I think, a really important visual element. It very subtly suggests that it's, impl it's implicitly associated with weight loss, and that's therefore central to the identity of the brand. So this isn't just a milk that will give you a pint of vitality. It's a milk that will actively help you lose inches. Now, this milk carton... I'm going to stand up and try not to break anything. So this milk carton was its 84. It relaunched its milk cartons, and this was month one. And then month two, it's like, uh-uh, we've, we've missed a trick here, and we're going to do this one. Now, what's the difference, you might ask? The difference is the numbers. So 26, 28, 30, who cares? 14, 16, 18 are women's dress sizes. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one is 14 inches around the waist. So they're making a, a very interesting change. The fact that we have the first iteration and then the, the bit that they've changed of this packet, I've read all of it, the bit that they've changed of this packet is only the numbers on the measuring tape. So it seems like a purposeful decision to align the numbers on the tape measure with standard dress sizes of British clothes. They may also be implicitly suggesting that this milk is targeted at women and specifically women who are looking to lose weight. And if we think back to this launch article, um, it's clear that Vitabite corresponded to the diet plans of Weight Watchers, which was the most popular diet plan amongst middle-aged women in the UK throughout the decade. Indeed, it was in 1985 that Heinz first launched its Weight Watchers range of products and to provide teaching aids to support the national curriculum in schools, which is very much of the, you know, get them young and keep them buying diet products um, school of thought. So the 1980s is a really interesting period in relation to the popularity of low-fat and reduced-fat diets because it's during this um, time or decade that public health concern is really shifting from focusing on male premature mortality deaths from coronary heart disease to also targeting women. Female mortality rates from cardiovascular disease accounted for more than half of all deaths throughout the 1960s and 1970s. And in 1981, when Vitapite was launched, was responsible for 51% of deaths. Women were also the main purchasers of food in this time period, and most likely to make health-related purchasing decisions. Therefore, choosing to implicitly target Vitapint at the female purchaser and consumer was a savvy marketing choice, especially at a time when branded manufacturers of low-fat products, such as Unilever, and I've looked at their Flora brand, and it would take them another five years to recognise the sales potential of marketing their margarine to women rather than men. And the last thing I'm just going to talk about in relation to the Vitapint packet is the nutrition data table. So this is really, really quite innovative for 1981. It was the first Sainsbury's product to lay out information in what's now really a very familiar kind of grid pattern. It broke down nutrient content into energy, protein, carbohydrate, and total fat. And below that listed the vitamin and mineral content as a percentage of both 100 mils and per pint, which um, says something else about how decimalization works in Britain, because milk, for some reason, is in pints, but loads of other things are in milliliters, which I don't know why. Um, so the inclusion of um, an ex almost explanatory text, so under nutrition, it basically tells you why you should drink this. Um, and it wants to, I suppose, talk about why the consumer needs certain vitamins, certain minerals, the role it can play in reducing fat. But at the front of the packet, let's not forget, it's still got this, I've circled it in green, this rich in calcium, rich in vitamin B12. And that's really corresponding to its color coding I talked of earlier, that brown is rich or high in something. And it really, I think, illustrates how these simple changes to labeling worked visually within the packaging, the idea of how you communicate information quickly and in ways that are kind of, that stand out if you're used to kind of reading those types of packets at that particular time. Now, sales of Vitapind rose throughout the 1980s. And by 1987, it accounted for almost one-fifth of all fresh milk sales, which is quite a lot at the time when 20% less people are drinking milk. But later in the decade, it's the best-selling type of milk is low-fat milk. 
1993, cartons of half-fat and virtually fat-free virtually fat milk had replaced Vitabite within Sainsbury's milk offering. And this reflected both the success of Sainsbury's and the Vitapite brand in convincing milk purchasers over the previous decade that low-fat had comparable taste <coughs> me, and nutritional goodness to whole milk, and corresponded to the popular belief that everyone needed to reduce their fat intake to maintain overall health. And therefore, Sainsbury's no longer needed considerable product and packaging differentiation at the point of sale, and was instead able to sell a variety of milk products which are categorised solely by fat. So by the early 2000s, low-fat milk consumption accounted for 61% of the fresh milk market. And NHS advice reinforced this perception um, that whole milk is kind of unhealthy milk, and the idea that it's only healthy for certain groups. So children, for example, very young children actually, between the ages of one and two, you're okay to drink whole milk. But all children is the advice to be moved from drinking whole milk to drinking semi-skimmed milk to help reduce their overall dietary fat consumption. So therefore, really, a lot of things are changing in this 80s, 90s period. The consumption of liquid whole milk, as I said, but also red meat, poultry, eggs, fats, sugar, potatoes, and white bread is decreasing. Consumption of low-fat milk, low-fat cheese, fruit and veg, low-fat spreads, cereals, and brown bread increased. Convenience food manufacturers developed low-fat products and a low-fat product range. And these are really, really, really interesting statistics at a time when, to a large extent, deaths aren't decreasing. So people are changing their habits, apparently, buying more of this, sales data shows it, and yet the amount of people still dying from stroke, high blood pressure, isn't really reducing to reflect that change. By the early 1990s, the food industry is being fully included in governmental approaches to health promotion pertaining to diet. In 1988, the Health Education Authority, which was the main quango responsible for the creation of health education messages, established its commercial department to work actively with the food industry, to exploit its access to the public within the purchasing environment, to communicate health advice through the food industry, and to also influence positively the advice that was being given by the food industry. And as part of this cooperation, Less Fat Fortnight was launched in June 1989 as part of the Look After Your Heart program I mentioned earlier. And it created alliances between the Look After Your Heart campaign, local health educators, and the commercial sector to promote the message that simple dietary changes would reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. Um, oh, I forgot to give you that one. It's just what I've said. Um, so this led to the creation of the last point, to the Food for Your Heart initiative in 1991. And the Food for Your Heart campaign aimed to help educate consumers by eating less fat and eating more fibre, help them recognise foods that are a valuable source of dietary fibre, as well as dispelling the myth that um, fibre-rich foods are fattening. Um, and also the third one, which is very interesting for me, encourage companies to make compositional and labelling changes to their products, as well as encourage the active participation in the promotion um, of the Food for Your Heart um, programme by the food industry. And health education authority evaluations of the campaign found that 75% of responders agreed that this promotion is more trustworthy because it is backed by the HEA, who's not trying to sell its own products, and that it helps people to think about the healthy foods to buy. So if I just quickly go back to what, that's what I've just said. I keep forgetting to do my slides. I apologise. Um, so if we just go back to the health of the nation that I spoke of earlier. And this was really key um, in, I suppose, uniting alliances between food industry and government, NHS, etc. And it created this comprehensive strategy, but also established a nutrition task force. And this task force incorporated significant input from the food industry, as well as retailers and caterers, 
um, to work with government departments. At this point, the government had fully recognised that the positive role that could be played by the food industry could not only save them time and money, but could be more effective at reaching target audiences. So the shift from health education as largely a governmental responsibility to health promotion as a key element of food consumerism is something that I'm really starting to unpack now. I think the formation of health promotion priorities away from the Department of Health complicates our understanding of how information on food and health was communicated to the public in the late 20th century. Um, so to briefly conclude, um, I hope this paper has shown some of the ways public health, food retailers and the NHS were all coming to occupy important roles in communicating low-fat dietary advice to the public. <coughs> Across the post-war period, the importance of the individual within public health was being formed by a risk-emergent agenda. <coughs> Sorry, pardon me. This individualism at every level of the food discourse revealed the distinct position that personal responsibility and individual choice could play. This emphasis on personal responsibility allowed consumerism to have a very important role in how people enacted change for themselves within the consumerist model of buying health. So the development of health education in Britain is more complex and layered than is often understood. Buying health became a commodity itself in the second half of the 20th century. Consequently, not only did food become medicalised, but medicine, um, and it was as health education, if you want to put it that way, also became increasingly perceptive to the persuasive force of food advertising and promotion. Nutritional information became disconnected from the medical domain of the doctor-patient relationship and instead was firmly placed within the sphere of the consumer, albeit the educated one. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you.